I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to the show. Chris Lee is one of the driving forces behind Launch School, an online coding academy that seeks to teach coding the slow way, working from the fundamentals up. And right from those words, you can hear that this is uh, an unusual approach, slow and studious. And Alex, we really enjoyed this episode. What was uh, what did you find interesting on this talk? Um, so I've actually, like, when we recorded the episode, I was just kind of starting out, but I'm kind of starting to work my way through uh, some of the stuff that Launch School has to offer. Um, and uh, it was very interesting just to kind of talk about, like, the background to essentially how they do what they do and... Um, as you said, like it's all about fundamentals. Like too often, a lot of the, these kind of education approaches are, you know, give you give someone enough to get their hands dirty, but not actually understand really what they're doing. Um, and uh, launch school, you know, really prioritize taking a lot of time, you know, upwards of one to two years to work through their their syllabus versus, you know, I'll teach you how to do everything in 24 hours. Um, and we talked a lot about kind of um, doing education online and some of the difficulties that that come from that, as well as kind of just difficulties attracting a wider spectrum of students. What did you like about this episode, Matt? Yeah, it same, same concept that that really the slow and methodical approach. Um, you know, it, it's sort of counter. It's it's obvious uh, to do anything and to do anything very well. It's going to take a bit of time to do it. But we're living in an era um, of uh, boot camps and coding boot camps and so on um, inside this this tech world. And to hear him uh, talk, which I think our, our listeners will enjoy his his take on um, coding boot camps. Exactly what you just said. Um, it's enough to get your hands dirty, but if you really want to to dive into the weeds and um, master, you know, a piece of knowledge and um, use it in your career and with all the benefits that come with that paycheck and so on, um, probably a different approach is best. And so found his thoughts um, on that topic very interesting. Sure, absolutely. So my name is Chris Lee. Uh, I am a software engineer by uh, by background. I've been doing it for uh, 16 years now, so since 2002. Started my career um, doing enterprise development um, and then did that for five years or so and then decided to uh, move into sort of the startup world um, and, and uh, first consulting uh, for various startups and then uh, did my own. Um, and then eventually, you know, you have to go get a real job because your startup didn't take off. <laughs> so uh, did that um, and then ended up at as a engineering manager out in San Francisco, as uh, many software engineers do, um, managing um, and running as a tech lead uh, engineering team um, for for ad tech company. Um, found it interesting from a technical perspective, not interesting at all from just a personal perspective. Did not want to spend the rest of my life doing ad tech. Um, getting paid a lot of money, but just not real meaning, uh, at least to me. So in 2012, uh, Kim and I started what eventually became Launch School, which is teaching people to code. Um, we were under a different brand, um, and then we got to Launch School. So that's sort of my background in a nutshell, mostly uh, software engineering uh, with uh, uh, tinges of entrepreneurship and um you know, striking on my own, and and um, and now you know, now I'm here with law school. So at, at the at the intersection of those two things, um, and and education. 
so we'll get to uh, launch school in a second, but I'm I'm curious to jump in right there on on what you um, what turned you off to ad tech as, as you put it. Um, I, there's so many ways to to fill that. What what turned you off to it? Well, I think most software engineering jobs, I think uh, they pay really well, of course, but and this is probably the case with all most jobs. Period. Um, and is is that you have to reconcile your personal beliefs with the primary goals of a money-making enterprise, right? And I feel like everybody has to go through that. And ad tech in particular, I feel like, uh, especially in San Francisco, is focused on growth, focused uh, on numbers. To, to jump in there, what, what turned you off to uh, ad tech? Is it too creepy or, or uh, what, what, what uh, steered you away from that? Yeah, so ad tech is a really exciting place to be. There's a lot of innovation there, but I think everybody has to go through this reconciliation process between their personal beliefs and the beliefs of the enterprise that they work for. Um, and in ad tech in particular, it's very numbers driven. It's hyper focused on money. And especially with regards to increasing conversions and eyeballs for uh, the customers of the ad tech company, which is, is a fine goal, uh, just not my personal uh, reason for getting up every morning. Um, <laughs> so it was very hard for me to just get excited for it. Uh, I got excited for my paychecks at first, but eventually you get numb to that. Even the numbers are pretty high. <laughs> After a while, you're just like, okay, that's that's fine. Um, and, and I've always been a person that you know I don't need a I don't need a BMW. It's 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 not a life goal of mine. So um, I, I think the money part of it can only carry you so far. But at the end of the day, I want to do something different. Yeah. So you are now involved with Launch School. So give us sort of the overview of that. And um, after that, what, what you do there exactly. Sure. So in this search for something different and something more me- meaningful, um, uh, we decided to, to focus on education. And I should maybe talk about my, my partner in this, uh, Kevin, who's uh, uh, working on this with me. Um, so I've known Kevin since 2002. Uh, very, very long time. And uh, early in our careers, we we're both software engineers at IBM uh, out in Austin, Texas uh, from 2002 to, uh, for me, 2007, he stayed a little bit longer. But um, the one of the things that we, even very early on, uh, around 2002 or 2003, we read a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, and one of the things that Jim talks about in that book is getting the right people on the bus. So after the ad tech, I, I was ready to, to leave uh, and, and do something on my own. And uh, so my partner and I, Kevin, who I work on Launch School with, um, we, we, and we've known each other since 2002. So we've always talked about working on something together. And we just decided to focus on education. Um, that's something that we both felt very passionate about. We felt that we could spend a great percentage of our life working on and trying to solve that problem. We're both software engineers. So we wanted a problem to solve on. I mean, you should see some of the other problems we consider, like energy and just something you know out of the blue. But um, there were some problems that we felt like were important problems that we didn't really have any background to work on, or we knew that we can work on it for maybe a year or two. But just to 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 pick something to work on for like decades, you I think you really have to believe in it. So we picked education to focus on. Um, 
and, and really going into it, focusing, wanting to focusing on either K through 12 or higher ed. We weren't really sure. And so the coding, uh, learn to code space was really not something in our minds when we first started thinking about this. It was really by chance that we came upon it. Um, and we really didn't have any teaching experience or significant teaching experience. And we wanted to experience that. We wanted to experience teaching, especially online. We were, um, we thought that online education was something that uh, was going to be more and more important. And this was before MOOCs or any of these other online initiatives really took off. So at the time we felt that online education was something that was still coming up and uh, we wanted to participate and we weren't sure how. So we decided to teach people um, something. And of course, the only thing we knew how to teach was programming. The course of, you know, last three to five years, we sort of migrated away from sort of this boot camp model to a mastery based system. And I think this is the thing that makes us law school unique is our implementation of mastery based learning, which is about comprehension first. It's not about time. It's about um, making sure that people know what they're doing each step of the way and taking indefinite time each step. So it's analogous to something like getting a black belt in Taekwondo or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? If somebody were to say, can I get a black belt? You would say, yes. If somebody were to say, can I, get a, can I get a black belt in two months? Right? The instructor will say, oh, I don't know, right? right? Maybe two months, maybe two years, maybe 10 years. We just, there's no, we don't have any idea, but every progression up the color belt is requires some test of mastery, right? Some test of comprehension. You have to demonstrate or demonstration of mastery. And that's what our curriculum is, right? Our curriculum is uh, a curriculum where you have to demonstrate you understand each topic every step of the way. And we don't know how long that'll take. And so we're a 100% mastery-based program. And again, that's, that's because we, we sort of evolved over the past three to five years to that system uh, because we were just unhappy with the results we were seeing, you know, in, in every single um, format that we tried teaching programming, there were a quite significant number of students that just didn't keep up, right? Our synchronous cohorts. So you think, mm-hmm. well, it'd be great if there was a teacher there, right? <clears throat> and there was classes. Well, we did that. And uh, even a one month course, which isn't that long, by the end, a very, very small percentage of students are showing up right? just because the rest have, have yeah. lagged behind, right? And if you lag behind, you're not going to keep showing up. So, um, so that's, what, that's what makes law school unique today, I think. And, and it's, it's um, as far as I know, the only place where uh, we employ, where, um, where mastery-based learning is employed. Yeah, I mean, and I should should tell you, you know, that that well, firstly, full disclosure, like I, I'm I'm kind of at the very beginning, kind of starting to work my way through some of the launch school stuff myself, and I've previously spent a year or two, um, kind of working on various other things, trying things with Udacity, various other kind of online learning courses, 
And it was when I kind of started reading and I can't remember where exactly I found out about it. It was this mastery based approach that you have and that you write about kind of so eloquently all over the place um, that really attracted me to, to what you do. Um, and I mean, you, you gave us a little bit of the, the context, but um, how did you, I mean, apart from the practical, you know, seeing that students weren't, weren't falling, um, were falling behind, how did you come to this approach to yourselves? Was it something that you'd uh, experienced in your own kind of study journey in your own kind of learning as, as part of your professional development? Or was it just something you, you, you kind of came towards and started kind of understanding and being able to express through working on Tea Leaf Academy and Launch School? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's pretty interesting to try to think about why, you know, other learn-to-code um, coding boot camps, uh, companies don't employ this. It, it, and, and, I, and I always go back to uh, why we started this journey. And why we started was to try to figure out education, right? It wasn't with a money-making endeavor in mind. And so for us, teaching became an engineering problem to solve, right? As opposed to like, how do we maximize our revenue? It, 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 it's very much a problem to solve. And so um, to answer your question, no, I didn't really, I was not a proponent of mastery-based learning before law school. I was not really uh, maybe peripherally aware of it, but mastery-based learning or competency-based learning is uh, not unique to law school. It's a very uh, well-known uh, pedagogy uh, in, in academic uh, papers, um, and uh, lots of research has been done on it, but it's really hard to implement. So if you think about a physical classroom, mastery-based learning means a student gets to occupy a seat in that classroom for an indefinite amount of time. That, that's a really hard uh, promise to make when your task, where our schools are tasked to basically usher through students, right? We're, it's, 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 not about training students and make sure they understand every concept, uh, but it's about just getting people through. And I think we can all think back to, you know, peers that we've had uh, maybe in middle school or such where the people didn't do well in math and then they just get ushered through to the next grade, right? You, oh, you didn't do that well in algebra. Next pre-calc. Like, how's that, how's that going to happen? Right, or right. next course is trigonometry or something like that. They, people rarely recover and catch up. It's it's just cumulative, right? So the right thing to do is really to to just learn that, right? Learn the basics of algebra before go, moving on to trigonometry. That that really should be the goal. Everyone should have an A level knowledge of algebra before moving on to the next topic because it just gets harder, right? It builds atop of each other, um, and so. Uh, you know, the, the, the one, one phrase we use at law school is that complexity grows exponentially if not handled linearly, right? So you have to handle each concept one at a time. Otherwise, it just grows out of control. The complexity does. When you combine concepts, the in, in, in entangling co uh, complexities just explode, right? So you re really have to be structured. This is true for for topics again that are that are very cumulative and programming is 
So, so this is, so how we came to mastery based learning is really a focus on trying to think about how to make sure our students understood and do, and again, being engineers, you know, we're not about expending as much individual effort as possible in terms of training, you know, going and doing personal tutoring on students. That's just not the way we think about problems, right? Uh, we think about it from a more engineering perspective. Like, what is a system I can build that can make sure everybody understands and that they don't go to trigonometry without understanding, you know, the multiplication table or something like that, right? The equivalent of that, right? So everybody mm -hmm. wants to, for example, everybody wants to learn about algorithms. Well, there's no point in talking about algorithms and solving um, complex algorithmic problems if you can't handle loops and and lots of people can't handle loops or nested loops right it, it, there's no point so to cover an advanced topic like algorithms there's no point in doing that unless you can handle nested loops right or people want to learn how to build apis right i want to i heard about microservices and i want to learn how microservices talk to each other via apis but the first thing is HTTP, right? Like you have to know HTTP and mm -hmm. then you can learn about APIs, right? So it, it, it's this idea of trying to learn one level below where you want to operate. That's kind of another thing we, we, uh, we espouse, right? So um, it, if you're trying to build, these, build a skill set where you can be a productive software engineer or application developer, and you want to learn concepts like H building APIs and uh, using algorithms and data structures, you have to learn one level below that, right? And mm -hmm. another point I should mention is that there are a lot of people, maybe most people who want to learn a program don't even want those goals I just mentioned. They just want to build an idea real quick. In that case, one level below that is not HTTP, right? It's, it's, it's just using like a framework to build something using Rails right. or using WordPress. Right. And that's okay, right? So it's always about what your goal is, where do you want to operate, and then learning the concepts one layer below that so that you can be a, an effective operator at the level of abstraction that you want to operate at. Right, and I think, mm -hmm. again, just segmenting the audience is really important. So for us, we, you know, we, that's why we always say this launch school is for people who want to launch a career, right? Because if you don't want that goal, then there's no need to learn uh, these concepts that we, we drill people on. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the thing which really rang true about what you've written and some of the kind of experiences of people who've been through the program have said about mastery-based learning. Well, the thing which resonated with me was well, I have this background in music. I started playing kind of violin very young when I was two or three years old and kind of worked for years and years at this one skill. And there, like, you know, it's, it's something with a long kind of history of pedagogy and I had amazing teachers and so on. So when I read what you were saying about mastery-based learning, I was like, oh, yeah, this this is, you know, the long-term course of learning a skill. It, it's something where it's, it's about the process. It's about going deep in it. It's about not moving forward until you've mastered what you're doing and so on. 
Um, so I, I found kind of a really kind of useful par parallel there. And I think you've spoken about that before as well, that you have a lot of musicians. Definitely. Music is a, we have a lot of musicians. And I think music is a good analogy in that if, so I don't have a musical background, <laughs> which is funny because I, I use it as a, as a analogy for what we're doing. But suppose I said, I want to learn a guitar. Like, what would your advice? Your advice would be like, yeah, just kind of go for it. Have fun. Right. Just give it a shot. See, you know, you wouldn't say study anything for like years. Right. You would say, just go do it. Just, you know, um, uh, mess around a little bit. And I think learning to code is the same way. So, you know, uh, the way we think about learning to code is not that when you first start, you should employ master based learning. That's that's going to derail any enthusiasm anybody has for 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 the for the craft. Right. Or for for programming. So we always say that the first stage of learning anything and programming included is this exploratory stage, right? And this exploratory stage is about having fun. It's about uh, building projects. So we call that top-down learning, right? Which is which is hands-on building things. You don't need to uh, you don't need to understand how things work. Just have fun with it, right? And that's true for anything. Um, I grew up playing basketball, and it's the same thing. If if somebody were to say today, I want to learn how to play basketball, say, let's go, let's go shoot around, right? I would not say, you know, uh, like, like when I was coached, you have to dribble for hours a day, left and right hand. Right. Um, I remember walking to school, basically the entire way, maybe a mile or two miles, like middle school, just bouncing a basketball between my legs all the way there and then on the way home every day. Right. So I wouldn't advise that to people. I wouldn't say take a basketball and dribble it for two hours a day. It, it, it just that's too much. Right. But if somebody were to say, I want to go pro now, I'm ready to go pro. I want to become a, a, a basketball coach or something like that. Right. Or if I, say, I want to be a professional musician now. Then it's time to study. Right. Then it's time to crack the books. Then it's time to drill and practice. Um, and so that transition from the exploration of a field to the journey of going pro, quote-unquote, right, or trying to become an expert in that field. Those are different phases, and they require different pedagogies. So mastery-based learning is for the second phase. When you're ready to go pro, you have to build, build up knowledge from the bottom up, right? So you plug the gaps. And, and then it unlocks a lot of the advanced concepts um, what, what I see is a lot of people go from explore and bypass the sort of building fundamentals and straight into the van. And then what they, what they realize is there's just so many knowledge gaps uh, that they have to go plug in. So they have to spend years of their career plugging in as opposed to, you know, just studying for, for months, right? Um, so I, I don't want to say mastery-based learning is the right path for anybody learn, learning to code or learning anything. But I do think that it is uh, the path if, if you're ready to transition out of that initial exploration phase. I, um, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by uh, Bertrand Russell. I, I know Alex and I could probably talk for hours with you on, on just this very uh, topic alone, but you know, he'd, he'd always phrased, uh, framed education as 
um, the capacity for enjoyment of things that essentially aren't open to everybody. So like if you really, really want to go for it, um, it does require passing through these these thresholds. I'm, I'm fascinated by so many things that you were just talking about, not least that you started seemingly, if we get the timelines right, moving away from coding boot camps right as they actually all started scaling up. I was working at a at a um, you know shared office space, <laughs> and uh, you know they all of a sudden I, I saw them everywhere, and everyone in the city was was wearing their t-shirts. Um, but from how you describe it and described it at the start of this discussion, it's it was almost it's seemingly a, a very simple, intellectually honest question, which is just is this actually working, and is it actually are people actually reading the skills, and um, you know to to follow that to its conclusion. What are the broader implications, do you think, for for the this learning paradigm that you're that you're pushing uh, to ask the tech question that uh, <laughs> everybody asks? You know, does this scale? So I think mastery based learning, as as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't scale when you try to employ uh, people in in a physical classroom, um, or at least it's hard, right? Because there's this idea that a student can be there as long as possible. Um, so we, at our school, we charge uh, $199 per month, right, $199 per month. And some people have said, well, of course you want people to stay as long as possible. Look at how you charge people, right? And they got that backwards. We came up with the pedagogy first, and then we chose a pricing scheme that fits the pedagogy. So does it scale? Well, there's a couple questions that in terms of is it sustainable? So our pricing is based upon the pedagogy, right? Um, so it's sustainable in that regard. Does it scale? I think it can only scale online. Um, in, in a physical building, you know, you're doing sort of cost per seat analysis. You, you're, you're going to uh, want to push people forward, right? Uh, you're gonna, otherwise, you're going to create a backlog. Um, especially for perhaps a more difficult topic, everybody's going to get stuck there, right? And and that's going to mess up your entire machinery, right, of, of pushing people through from class to class to grade to grade, right? It is a machine. It's a factory, right? It's a conveyor belt. And imagine all the packages kind of getting stuck in one section of the conveyor belt in the entire factory. That, that's what will happen. And online, that's okay. We don't have physical seats. Uh, so it's, it's definitely scalable uh, when executed online. I think in, in person, it, it, it's very, very difficult. Are, are there any kind of bigger implications for, in terms of just like how education works from what you've learned? Um, uh, I mean, Matt and I have spoken to people on this podcast and had long conversations ourselves about kind of dissatisfaction with just education in general. And, you know, there's an ongoing broader conversation in Western societies that, you know, education is somehow broken the way that we do it currently. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that or takeaways from your, your own experience that you could, that you could talk, to, talk, about, talk to that. Yeah, and I think education is so, it's odd in a lot of ways because the, the value that students get has such a lag from when they pay. Right, it, it, there's a, just a tremendous lag. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you think about something, let's say like Uber, 
you pay for an Uber ride and you derive the value immediately. It, you can see it, right? right? You, can, yeah. you can feel the value. It's like immediate. It's like, oh, that was worth 10 bucks for sure. Um, I view education almost like a restaurant that serves healthy food. And the restaurant says something like, if you eat here for five years, you will live 10 years longer, <laughs> something like that, right? Or, or like an investment. But the food tastes really bad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly. It's, um, you think about a restaurant that serves healthy food, and uh, it doesn't necessarily taste great. It doesn't optimize on taste, but it optimizes on health. Your, your perceived uh, value of that is going to be far in the future, decades in the future, right? So a truly, uh, truly effective restaurant that focuses on nutrition as opposed to taste has to somehow convince their audience to keep coming back or their patrons to keep coming back night after night without any immediate perceived value. Right, the perceived value is much further down the road, years down the road, perhaps. And I think education is kind of stuck in that weird thing where um, a lot of people are, and this is why restaurants, by the way, there's no like real successful healthy restaurants, right? Chipotle maybe, but people they optimize on taste, right? But there's really not a huge like think about all the successful restaurant chains um, in the United States. For the most part, they're all unhealthy, right? If you eat there right. every day, you're gonna you're gonna die. <laughs> right. So, um, I think education is kind of like that too, where you know coding boot camps can make a big promise. You know, in a few months, you can get a job, and they had been getting away with that because the job market is so great. It's so good. It's so good that the market and there's such high demand for software programmers that they can take people in that initial explore phase. And, give them, and, and pay them money, right? And that's why boot camps are very successful. If you really think about more long-term though, it's dangerous because you have a lot of people who are very, very um, underskilled, right? Yep. I mean, two months, three months, I, I, there's just not enough time to really develop context. Um, uh, uh, or, or nuance um, for, for some of these problems. So if there's a downturn or something like that, then people are not going to be able to get these low-hanging fruit jobs, right? So it's very dangerous. And I think boot camps, the effectiveness is really a marketing effectiveness. It's market forces that allow that to happen. Um, and also it's just the marketing aspect of it, right? Because it appeals to people's um, sort of desire for, for fast results. Right. So, but real, real, I think, solid and, 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 and lasting education needs to last decades, right? Career. But people can't perceive that. So I think that's the hard part about education. And just like if you were to create a, a restaurant that focused on healthy food, um, you know, like the, the juicing companies have sort of changed that a little bit to make it more hip. Right, and that's a different, different angle, right? You have like ten dollar smoothies that is sort of um, fashionable, right? Um, uh, and and I think uh, another company that's kind of doing that is like something like CrossFit, right? CrossFit is uh, fit, but you know, those people wearing shirts, it's like a point of pride. It's a it's a fashion statement to say I'm part of a CrossFit gym. 
right? And so anything that requires like a long, like a long-term result much, much later, you, you almost have to appeal to that side of it, right? And this is why people go to like MIT or Stanford or something like that, right? Because they're like, well, at the end, I'm going to get this great, you know, statement about myself, just, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I'm willing to put in four years for that, right? So yeah. coding boot camps, it, it's hard, right? If you don't have that, it's hard to get people to stay for years. Um, and so we're, we're sort of fighting that battle, if you will, um, just convincing people that it's, you know, more long, there's a more long-term battle here to be had, um, and you'll have a much more satisfying career. And, um, you know, you don't want just a job doing programming because most programming jobs, as I alluded to earlier with ad tech, are not very good, are, are, are not very satisfying, right? Um, what you want to do is you want to develop enough mastery so that you can dictate some, some, some of your own terms on your career. Right? Isn't that what we all want? Um, but in order to do that, you have to you have to get pretty good. And I right. think that's kind of what we're trying to do here. So to to jump in there, you know, you you unpacked that theme um, pretty eloquently in uh, a post I believe is called the the dangers of learning just enough, which is a great great title. Um, just carrying that straight through out of the theoretical, but straight down to the world as we find it today. Are, are the implications essentially that, that we're at amateur hour, just sort of across the board? And uh, even though, you know, these jobs, as you noted, are coming with six-figure salaries and, and you know, demand, we, you just see study after study that the U.S. is not producing enough people on, on any of these fronts to just stick to, to the American example. Um, it, you know, so we're just sort of churning out C-rate C um, product. Is, is that it? Like, is that where we are right now? Well, I've been trying to resist talking about higher ed or anything like that. Just kind of, that's, but I, <laughs> we're going to pull you into it. So yeah, like, give us, uh, give yeah. us your line. Yeah. As far as coding boot camps go, I, I, I feel like we're in a temporary space where um, companies can continue to say, "Hey, you can get a job in three months," and that's true. You can get a job job in three months. I don't, I don't think that can happen. Um, you know, indefinitely, right? Um, just at some point, we're going to have a downturn. That's okay. People don't need to freak out. I've been through two downturns in my career, um, and uh, for the last, you know, like eight years or something like that, it's it's been it's been pretty good. And and there's a lot of people entering the field um, now, uh, entering the software engineering field now, who've never experienced a downturn. But downturns are fine, you know, as long as you have the skills. So that's the coding bootcamp industry. Although we don't call ourselves a bootcamp, but you know, we get we get clustered into that um, that group. Um, but the implications for higher ed in general, I think higher ed, uh, it's, it, 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 obviously there's problems, right? There's, there's obvious problems. Uh, student debt is just, uh, it's like 1.5 trillion now. Um, yep. and people can't get jobs after college. Um, and I feel like, uh, there's also a very predatory, uh, component especially the for-profit colleges that prey on uh, very low-income um, communities. Um, and of course, the for-profit colleges don't take any risk because they approve uh, uh, the loan, which, uh, which is um, backed by the federal government. So we as taxpayers all paid for this, right? So we all, we all kind of know the story, right? Um, if we don't, I can recommend a movie that recently came out called 
failed state, uh, failed state, and uh, it's a documentary about sort of the for-profit colleges. And um, there's also, you know, like frontline specials on this. Uh, so higher ed, uh, you know, at the very top, right, when we talk about the Ivy Leagues and the MITs, sure, like, that's, that's fine. I'm not talking about that. But that, that's a very small slice of, of, uh, of students in the United States, right? Think about higher ed in general. I think higher ed, it, it has this tension be- between um, wanting to, to educate people and retention, right? So you, the key word in higher ed nowadays is retention, right? It's not learning, it's retention. How do we get students and then how do we get them to stay, right? Because the attrition rate, I think for freshmen for a lot of schools are like close to 50%, which is astounding if you think about it, right? It's astounding. And so yeah, they're yeah. trying to retain students. And, and one way they do that is to, it's through grade inflation, right? So everybody gets a good grade now. C, a C nowadays is basically a fail. Um, and so nobody fails, right? And if a professor fails too many students, that professor is going to get pulled into the dean's office, say, what are you doing? You know, if you fail students, they're not going to come back, right? We, we can't have students not come back, especially these ones paying full tuition. Come on, right? Um, so higher ed, you know, is, is under a lot of pressure, um, and they're, they're balancing a lot of forces. And, and, you know, running launch school has given me a small taste of those various conflicting forces, right? And we, we, we go through the same thing where if someone doesn't pass an assessment, what do we do, right? And, and you're almost sort of incentivizing yourself to um, pass the student because otherwise they might cancel. They might leave, Right. So for us, you, you have to make a choice, right? You have to say, either I care about people learning, in which case I have to hold the bar, or my goal is just to make sure people keep paying, right? And you see this bifurcation higher ed, right? You see universities, you know, kind of going one way or the other, right? Sort of, um, and, and, and if you have the system where you incentivize professors to just pass people, First of all, it dilutes the meaning of a, of a college degree because you're passing a lot of people who are not ready, right? And they know they can just get away with it. And company, companies start noticing this, right? So why, do, why does everyone want to go to college? Well, historically, it's because every, everybody demanded it, right? Uh, every company demanded it. But you're starting to see companies not demand a college degree anymore. You're starting to see that, right? Like Google doesn't demand that. Um, I think Deloitte said recently, they're no longer going to demand a college degree, right? And the reason is because the college degree has begun to lose uh, any sort of meaning as far as quality. And part of the reason for that is because schools need to retain all the students because otherwise they can't make money. Um, And so they're letting everybody through. Right, so it's just a compound effect here. So what does that mean? Um, it means more than ever, I think a mastery-based learning system uh, it, it is required and, re- and, and learning institutions have to sort of hold the bar, if you will, right? And educate students on 
why that is. And so I spend most of my time talking about master-based learning for this reason, right? And so it's one of those things where, hey, if we don't pass you on assessment, it's not because we dislike you or we're out to get you or anything like that, or we're just trying to, you know, mess, mess with people. It's because this is really critical, right? And by the end of it, you're going to really know what you're doing. And employers will really, really like that, right? And so our average salary is 111000 right now in the United States. So that's, I think that's evidence that, um, you know, master-based learning can be effective. Yeah, I, I love it. You're, you're stepping into so many discussions that are longer to discuss, particularly, you know, sort of like distribution curves, so many arguments, uh, all, all sorts of ways of um, performance and does everybody need to go to college and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, but I'm wondering if you can comment specifically on your, your students and, you know, how they, how they span, if they do, the socioeconomic spectrum, you know, sort of the problem, and correct me uh, where I'm wrong here, but sometimes the problem seems to be that you have to know about certain things in order to take advantage of them, and that's obviously true in so many things, but how, how can you, uh, obviously each student that you work with is one more, and that's one more, you know, person with, uh, that you've changed their life or, or given them a radical new approach that, that will improve a lot of their work, um, but um, you know, how do you get this to um, uh, across the spectrum? So first, could we just start with your students? Who who are they? Who signs up for this stuff? Yeah, so most most of our students right now are career switchers. So we have had a few high school students and a, and and some college students, um, but most are career switchers. So in other words, they're they're working professionals. Um, even people who are not working are voluntarily not working. Right, so they're they're, um, they're they quit their job or something like that to work on a launch school full time. Um, so, and I think that makes sense because again, we're we're a pretty rigorous program, and so um, and we're aiming for you know not any programming job. We're aiming for good ones, right? And and the reason is because well, some, we, we like we have lawyers, we have people that work on Wall Street in our program, and they make a lot of money. So there's like I'm going to take a pay cut, but it's got to be a good job because you know, I currently don't like my job. So there's no point in, you know, switching careers to a job in programming. Well, you, you have an, another job that you don't like now, except you're programming instead of practicing law or whatever. That doesn't right. make any sense. Right? You want to get to a solve, a, solve a, solve that problem of not enjoying your work. So you have to enjoy your work. And in order to do that, you have to take the, you know, take a few more months to learn. It, it, it's crazy. I have to convince people to take, you know, a few more months to, to learn things well, but that's where we're at right now. Right. So those, that's been um, most of our students. And um, we've been iterating and perfecting our system. Um, and I think we're maybe at a point where we can open up a little bit more, right, um, to, to more underserved audiences. Um, so, uh, but right now we, you know, we're a very small company. We don't have a marketing budget. Uh, a lot of people haven't heard about us, right? So I would say we are currently not at a place where like, we're actively choosing students, if you will. Right. So it's not like we say, don't do, you know, this is not an audience. We're going to go after, go after this other audience. I think it's just, so whoever happens to find us fit this category of, uh, 
career switching people who really want to, they know what they want and they know what they don't want. They, you know, they can make money uh, doing their current thing, but they want to switch over to something better. So what we don't do well is people who are just trying to get a programming job, right? Like I just, I don't care if I make $40,000 or $50,000. I don't really care. I just, that'd be fine with me. I don't, I feel like our pitch just doesn't resonate. Right, because you got this other pitch, a competing pitch of like get a job in three months, and we're saying, you know, maybe one or two years you can get a job, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. um, it's only if you're you 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 uh, are okay, uh, you you want you know sort of cross that chasm, uh, apply for some of these better jobs, that that pitch makes sense. Um, yeah, so that's been that's our current audience. So I wanted to kind of dig in a bit more on this this idea of kind of non-traditional students or people who aren't um because actually i think it was on the launch school podcast that i listened to this fascinating story of one of your students who was from pakistan um and i think who had to sell his car or something um uh, in order to kind of continue studying and he got a lot out of it and um and i actually had the experience recently in in afghanistan actually um of kind of watching someone go through that whole experience of kind of coming to coding and starting to to think about it and starting to they were more in this kind of exploratory phase I guess that you were talking about earlier um but it it really does seem that for for a lot of these kind of non-traditional entrants to um to coding or learning this kind of uh, I don't know to to think of things from this kind of more engineering mindset um, a lot of the current resources seem to kind of get things backward. Like they teach you how to move a, I don't know, a turtle around the screen or something in, you know, turning 180 degrees every time, but they don't teach you, you know, why you might want to to choose one thing or the other or what problems are important to solve or um, or even how to think about solving problems in the first place. Um, seems that there are all sorts of skills which are kind of mm. left out just in the in the interest of having something which is, you know, able to be marked by a computer versus, you know, a slightly more complicated experience. So I wondered, you know, whether you have any thoughts on how do we teach those people who aren't already predisposed or on the road to learning these skills? Sure, yeah. And I think, again, it comes back to the need to learn one level, one layer lower than where you want to operate, right? So if you, um, like the, the, the game thing, um, if you want to use that as part of something else, um, you know, like you're a data scientist and you, or, or you're an illustrator and you need a little bit of programming skill to demonstrate something, I think that's good enough, right? That's good enough. If you want to try to get a job at Google as a software engineer, that's not going to be good enough. Right, I made a turtle turn around. Like people are not going to really be impressed by that. So, um, it, 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 your your goal matters a lot in terms of how you learn, what you learn, and how seriously you learn. Right. Um, so, I think a lot of people that are um, not in the United States, or especially in sort of um, developing country, um, there's no context for what's possible. Right, like in the U.S., we can give kind of oh, you exactly. can work yeah. here, yeah. or you can try to work there. Whereas they can't even think about that, right? So it's 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 really interesting because about half our students are international at law school. International just means outside the United States. 
Um, so, um, and about half of that uh, group are in um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, maybe less than half, maybe one third are in, uh, you know, outside of Europe, outside of Australia, sort of in developing countries, right? Um, maybe Southeast Asia, maybe Central America, um, maybe parts of Asia, or, um, and Africa even, right? So, um, to coach these students in terms of what they can do is very difficult, right? Just because there's no jobs around them. So there's no anchor for sort of why you should learn this, right? So it's pretty easy in the United States, at least to say, well, if you want to go work at a company like Google, you should learn this, right? That's, that's a fairly straightforward statement to make. And you can decide, say, well, no, actually, that's too hard or that's too high of a goal. I don't want to do that. But when you don't have that context, I think it's really difficult to, um, to convince people to learn things deeply unless they just have this natural intellectual curiosity, right? Um, so it, it, it is much harder to provide that context until we have more opportunities that we can tie people to, right? So I, I think for me, education has always been about a, a concrete result. And I think that's another difference between um, what we're doing at launch school and, you know, higher ed or even high school, right? It's, it's like, get a degree, get a degree. That's the goal, right? And graduation rates, um, you know, high schools are ranked on how many, one of the rankings, at least, one of the metrics is how many people go to college. And then college is how many people graduate. To me, this is mixing a means to an end, right? Somehow the college degree is the end. Well, having a successful career is an end, right? Being skilled in order to do something is, is the end, right? Um, graduating high school, getting a college degree, these should be means to those ends. So um, at law school, I spent a lot of time thinking about what is the end? What is the end result, right, for this training? It's not just finish law school, right? That's not the end. That's not the, the, the goal. It's not, it's not to finish law school. The goal is something else, right? It's to get a job over here, make this much money, be productive in this way or that way, right? Um, and, I, and I have a hard time thinking about the, the end, the goal for um, sort of people in developing countries. It's, it's very hard for me to, to sort of anchor it, anchor the learning to anything concrete. And I think it's really hard for, for them too because they can't envision why. Like if I say do 100 exercises, it's hard to envision why that's necessary. So with that, so they, I think they, from the top down helps. Like, yeah, uh, to to jump in there is so even though you know everybody is working with engineers, you know, all around the world, that it's still not enough. They can't plug into to the remote work uh, element of programming that you know a lot of folks are pretty excited about. It's still that's not tangible enough. It, it is remote work. So like law school, like many, many companies are, is 100% remote. We have TAs, you know, around the world. Um, uh, and so there are a lot of companies like, like us that have staff around the world. Um, but it does require a level of sort of a existing professionalism. So if we're taking, let's say, high school kids in developing countries, how do we develop that professionalism, right? Because it's hard to coach that in a remote setting, right? So they have to be able to use Slack. They have to be able to use email. They have to be overly communicative. 
they have to, and even just being in the U.S., that's something that you have to manage, right? Um, and then you add in the international component, and then you add in sort of the the inexperienced component, right? So remote work is, and just within the confines of the United States, remote work is definitely possible, but it, it requires a certain level of professionalism that, that you have to get somewhere, right? Where, where did you get that from? Maybe it's a previous work experience, uh, you know, pre- previously, and you know how to, you know, navigate office politics and things like that, right? You know how to navigate an organizational structure. And that's hard enough when you have hallways, but take that away and you're not bumping into people. Um, so those are the sort of the intangible things that come up, I think, in, in, uh, in remote work, not less, you know, technical and more just sort of people to people. Now, if they can, if they get coaching on that and they, or they, they develop that, uh, I think it's definitely possible. It on um, should everybody learn to code, and and I mean that from sort of two, two angles. You know, one at the theoretical level is it just computers are now and and sort of inherently will be a major part of human existence and life moving forward. So everybody should have at least a working knowledge of how they work and how they come together and how they function, just because that's the new you know element of being being an educated person and second you know should everybody learn to code because it's also you know helps boost your paychecks <laughs> uh so uh, i think everyone needs to learn to code from a standpoint of just awareness not necessarily law school law school is again you know a, a couple steps beyond that right so um yeah i do think that um, having technical proficiency is uh, is only going to become more important, um, and you know a lot of people are are basically programmers, even though we don't call them that. For example, there's a lot of people who use Excel, um, and uh, Excel allows you to write some very basic conditional statements. That's programming, right? Um, people use these complicated CRM tools like Salesforce. They're basically doing queries. They may not know it, but they're doing queries, right? When you um, or when you ever use like the advanced search on Google search, and you say, "Well, this keyword and that keyword, but not this keyword," that's putting a query together, right? That's 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 programming too, right? So I think programming is a way of thinking um, and problem solving and systematic problem solving, um, and using a language is just how we express that. So, uh, yes, I think that's going to be more and more important. Now, does everyone need to become a software engineer? That's a different question, right? That's what law school's goal is, to, <laughs> right. is, to, is to produce software engineers. That, that I don't know, right? That requires, like, do you, it, it's almost like, do you want to be a lawyer? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, sort of a career choice. Um, but I think programming concepts are just going to touch more and more things. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of people out there who are basically doing programming tasks um, every day, even people who don't feel like it, like um, an admin at a dentist's office, right? They might be managing Excel, managing this or that, and they're basically doing programming-like tasks, uh, even though we don't call them programmers. But technical proficiency, problem-solving um, understanding how systems work and how systems connect and how data flows. Absolutely. I think more and more um, 
jobs will require that. Um, I think that's a wonderful place to kind of uh, bring things to a close somehow. Um, uh, obviously, you know, Matt and I, everything you've talked about kind of pushes all of our buttons and, and we're kind of, yeah, we could we could talk, keep talking about this for a really long time. Um, but um, if people want to kind of learn more about Lawrence School, learn more about mastery-based learning and so on, um, how can people get in touch, find you online? Yeah, so the easiest place to start would be just launchschool.com. We also have a Medium publication that has a lot of our series. Um, We don't spend a lot of time, you know, on marketing speak. We're very transparent. We're very um, open about how we think about things. So we have a Medium publication, so medium.com slash launch-school, or you just search for Launch School Medium publication. There's a lot of articles there. Um, but launchschool.com, certainly. Um, and people can email me directly to chris at launchschool.com. Oh, that's great. Uh, chris, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>